Hello and welcome to the MIT Press Podcast. You're currently listening to the third of four discussions produced in collaboration with Repeater Books. And today, Joy White will be speaking to Danveer Singh Barar about his forthcoming book, Tech Life, Gettoville, Esky, which is publishing next month with Goldsmiths Press. Joy White is a lecturer in applied social studies at the University of Bedfordshire and the author of two books. Urban Music and Entrepreneurship, which was one of the first books to foreground the socioeconomic significance of the UK urban music scene, and more recently, Repeater Books published Terraformed, Young Black Lives in the Inner City, in which Joy connects the dots between music, politics, and the built environment in Forest Gate, East London. As well as authoring Tech Life, Get a Real Esky, Dan Veer is a scholar of Black Studies specialising in the intersections of black critical thought, black radicalism and culture. He has taught at Goldsmiths College, Central St Martins and the University of East London, as well as being a founding member of the London-based Black Studies Group. So with introductions done, I'll now hand over to Joy and Danvir. Yeah, George, how do you want to kind of get things underway? I do have a couple of questions. Well, I've got mm-hmm. one question. Well, I've probably got more than one question, so yeah. I'll be specific. What was really interesting for me was your theorising about grime and what it is and what it does. And so you, you pose these series of questions from the outset and then you then kind of take us through as you try to answer those questions and so when I saw the questions in the beginning I was thinking I don't know if I'd even thought of grime in that way or within within that framework so that's that's why it was interesting for me and it's and it was also interesting because it's um in many ways I take quite a different approach to writing some of those stories and explanations if you like that would be my starting point that I was fascinated by it yeah (laughs) Um, because it was so because it was so different you know one of the reasons was because it was so different and so even though the subject matter is common to both of us um in in many ways the reading of it and the approach to it was so different and so that I started from a point of yeah fascination really and and with these questions that you 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 start us start us off with was really long winded. I know I've gone all the way around. It's my research style as well, and my listening style, which is to kind of wander. But we we'll get there. So in the beginning, you, so you you pose this this um this idea that antagonism is. I don't know if it's an you're saying it is antagonism is the primary mode that grime raises. Is antagonism the primary mode of grime? And if it is, what does it sound like? How is it generated? Where does it come from? And then you kind of branch off into, well, if we hold those questions in our minds, then is the antagonism external? Is it something that's pressing on from the outside? Or is it internal? And does it come from the music itself? 
So I suppose for me that would be my my opening <laughs> comment rather than a question. I've done it, haven't no. I? It's a comment rather than a question. No, it's no, like, no. That. Well, how did we get to that? How did you get to that point? And where do we go from there? Yeah, no, that's, that's a fantastic. It's it's one of these weird things. Uh, it's fantastic thought, right, that you, you've given us to start with. But it's funny. It's one of the slight, I wouldn't call it worries, but kind of hesitancy I had with regards to being in conversation about the book in general or, or uh, having a chat about it is having to go back through and read it again. <laughs> and I didn't. And the funny thing was I kind of had to drag myself to reread it and I kind of stopped halfway through. So I didn't get back to the grime chapter. So just as you mentioned those questions, I have a copy of the book in front of me and I was like, right, I better. Rem-. But you actually neatly reminded me of what it is I was trying to trying to do. But yeah, to respond to what you said, I think what I was attempting to do was, yeah, ask a question of, it's a kind of, it's a kind of convoluted way of asking a simple question, uh, which is, firstly, would grime exist if it wasn't for all of the structural pressures that shaped the world and the, and the people who make it? And if those structural pressures, so whether it's the structures of economic violence, the structures of racialized state violence, and then the way those are played out at the immediate everyday level. If those weren't there, firstly, would grime exist? And if it would, if it, and if it did exist, if you remove those structures, what would it sound like? Would it sound the same? Right. And so I was trying to kind of get at because there's that often there's that as I kind of try to point to in the chapter, and I think you know you you point to much more clearly than I do in the book in the reception of urban black music forms uh, and the discussion about them, particularly when questions of violence appear, there's a lot of confusion and a lot of kind of, there's a lot of talking across purposes, even if it's when, even when this, when those music's defended, that there's often a, I think there's a kind of categorical mistake taking place in that, well, there's something, there's something internal to the music, which seems slightly independent of all the stuff that's going on around it. Right. And I think there's something going on, and that's to do with the, let's call it in a simple word, the artistry of it. So I guess what I was trying to do was pose, I'm not sure if I answer the question, but just pose the question, let's try, let's just try this thought experiment. Let's separate out the artistry of the the kind of collectives of people who made Grime, Wiley, Rough Squad, Sludem Crew, the kind of pirate radio collectives. Can we separate out the very thing that they were doing from the, the structures around them? Now, I think that's not, it's not entirely possible. What becomes audible if you try that out? Because I think what's missed out in a lot of the discussions about grime is the very fact of its artistry. And sometimes it rests on a minor distinction around, or not a, a kind of minor difference of emphasis around that violence question. Because I think it's undeniable there is an part of what's going on in grime is dealing with or aestheticizing antagonism. It's a kind of non-violent use of force, I guess. That's what I think what makes the music what it is. It's a non-violent use of force. It's a non-dominant use of force. And I think that's what interested me because I was I was always interested in kind of Wiley's claim, you know, Wiley's insistence is lyrics for lyrics, right? In a way, he, what he was saying there is that we're, we're taking something that's flowing around us but we're kind of ripping it out of that and make it and turning it into an art form, right? That grime isn't reducible to an understanding of state violence. Yet you can't entirely separate it from that. 
But I think there's something that it just, what makes it so powerful and what makes it so fascinating and compelling is it's able to pull something out of a, and kind of have a partial autonomy. And I, and I think that's what met, that's why the state kept on coming back harder and harder each time in a way, because it kept on pulling away. The, the scene, the sound kept on creating conditions which rendered it kind of unpoliceable in a sense that it could be fully captured no matter how, how hard they tried. I just think it's a really interesting and unusual perspective. And now you've gone deeper into the explanation, I kind, I kind of understand or I'm beginning to understand what it is you were trying to, trying to do. And I suppose for me, I take a different route in, if you like, which is that the, the art and the artist and the environment are intertwined and connected. Discussion centres mainly around the kind of origins, the emerging emerging years. And so the external forces, if you like, or the external, the external environment, what those young people, young, predominantly young men, would have absorbed and been influenced by would have been not just the environment, the immediate environment that they find themselves in, but also what they'd drawn from that kind of intergenerational experience as well, because parents, older siblings, um, older relatives and so on, that have brought those sounds from somewhere else. And they kind of, they get spread out into these young people that then create something that sounds, sounds so different. And I think so. So for me, that kind of it wasn't just that the, the, there was this um, something in there. And I think you were talking about Simon Reynolds, about it being very the area being very insular, almost like a, a micro, a micro colony. And, and I'm thinking about in those times. And even though you could say that it was inward looking, those external sounds, practices were coming in via those intergenerational conversations, sounds, practices, creativity, the dance hall videos came in as, a, as an object, but also as practice as well. And so I find it difficult to separate the art from the artist, from the environment. And, and so in that same way, then this kind of hostile environment that these emerging grime MCs and DJs find themselves in is part of a longer process that begin begins many decades before, and then what's all what was also interesting. It's a great thought experiment because it really made really made me think about Newham and Tower Hamlets as um, black communities, black spaces, black cultural practices, and then I'm thinking to myself, well, were were Newham and Tower Hamlets then and now? seen as black spaces and black communities, foundational black communities in the same way as somewhere like Brixton or Tottenham. And so, and then that brings another layer to your thought experiment then, doesn't it, in terms of, well, what gets absorbed, where does it come from, and kind of speaks a little bit, I think, to your question about, well, would it have sounded any different without those external pressures, if you like? Perhaps it would, because even if you take out the kind of poverty and the lack of resources, all of those other things were still there. Exactly. The yeah. racism, the racialized environment, the socio-geographic space was still, all of those things were still there. So I still don't think that grime could have happened from 
Richmond-upon-Thames. <laughs> no, 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 no. I think that, I just, again, I, I, that's not the, yeah, that's certainly not the claim I'm trying to make. <laughs> not at all. Yeah, so... <laughs> I'm just I'm being I'm being troublesome. <laughs> no, 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 no. It's fine. I think um, the Simon Reynolds comment that you point to about the inward-looking microcolony. I think uh, something that I didn't uh, draw it out, but something that I tried to do to kind of give a different slant on that is when I bring in Stuart Hall's discussion of urbanized form of colonization taking place in Crisis Britain in the 70s, right? And um, but what's interesting about the difference between Reynolds' idea of an interior kind of closed off, kind of inward looking micro colony that creates grime is that Stuart Hall, firstly, you can take Stuart Hall and go, well, actually, this process begins a lot earlier. But secondly, what Hall's telling you is talking about a lot of retentions, a lot of practices that are being passed on. And also, you might be, you might seem to be in this interior looking world, but actually, due to the historical circumstances of your being in that world, you can have a much broader, let's say, like a um, international or world historical perspective, right? And that's that interesting thing. I think one of the most fascinating things about the claims for kind of grime being, or grime sounds so new or so kind of different to anything that went before it, yet in the, if the this is grime kind of oral history that was put out a few years back, one of the first things that Wiley tells says in it is that, you know, my dad and Jammer's dad were in the same reggae band together, right? So there's something. This it's. I think it's both that it's a complication of something being passed on but not being reproduced. So they take something from it, but they want to. They want to kind of make sure what they create seems to have no bearing on what went before. And I think that's the artistry of it to me. They want to kind of complicate genealogy, and that's the same way. I think I think they're trying to complicate. It's clear you can't listen to Grime and not hear what was going on with the way that the state was pressing on the local area. Yet they want to make a, seem to want to make a music which is not reducible to an understanding of that. They're saying like what we're doing in a way they're reclaiming space, they're reclaiming autonomy. Yeah, I can see that in in one way, but I can also see that in that reclaiming of space and that kind of reworking and making something new there there is a call back there is a call back and a kind of bringing some of the past into what they're doing i'm talking about those early years now and then as the decades now roll on <laughs> decades as as it as it rolls on then the the sound takes on a somewhat different shape but i think that those links and codes to the past however they brought in. I think they're there. When I first started <laughs> researching grime, it was in 2000, 2007. And at first, because I thought I was going to be researching something else entirely, but it was the young people that I came into contact with that were kind of, you know, and I thought, oh, I've heard this all the time, but I didn't realize it was so popular. And the moment the penny dropped for me, I think I was watching, I was, I'd watched, I can't even remember which MCs they were now clashing. But I just finished watching, um, I think it was Cutty Ranks, and there was this kind of instant penny drop that I, I could hear the two things together. I could hear the two things, and I could see it as well. I could see from the gesture, the pose, the move, all of it, the kind of, what did you say when Lewis, um, while this is lyric for lyric, lyric for lyric, bar for bar, that kind, that kind of element. And, uh, and so from there, I knew where I was, because I grew up with sound systems. 
and fell in love with dancehall at a later date. So for, for me, yeah, that's when it all, all came together. And I wish I could remember which MCs they were, but it, it just so happened it was on the same same day. It started to make sense. I knew where I was. I could hear where it had come from. I wouldn't have an ego that large to say I knew where it was going because I had I didn't expect the world to open up in the way that it did. But it's this other thing because I think the other thing as well is that when what I can see that you're trying to do, attempt to do is disrupt these kind of common ways of seeing and talking about something so that we can kind of move ourselves away from these kind of, you know, it's this or it's that, but let's try and think of it in a different way. But this idea as well, that it the insularity and the being um, corralled into marginal spaces troubles me a little bit, especially for those early days. If we're talking about now, particularly in terms of young people, maybe whatever type of music they make, young black people, whatever type of music they make, we're talking about the block and the postcode and all of this kind of thing. But in those early days, I think, as I was trying to explain before, that those sounds were coming from around, they were coming from the Caribbean, they were coming from Africa, they were coming from the US. Those sounds were coming in and they were coming out in various forms. But also people were moving. People were, I, I just listened to, um, and you talk about Jammer's birthday set in, 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 in the chapter. And so, one of, when you're describing about, you know, Matt Tennant and all of these people. And I was just watching an interview with Matt Tennant and Carnage that they did in December. So they're talking about, you know, how they got into the scene, this kind of thing, and their experience. And Matt Tennant and Carnage both described being in and out of crews, working with this person and that person, not local. Matt Tennant talks about being at school <laughs> and having a show on rinse at, on a Tuesday Tuesday night, two till four in the morning. He was a 15-year-old and he'd walk from Plasto to where Rince was in Brick Lane, across boroughs, across boroughs. So people were physically moving. That this, this idea that people were just kind of corralled, looking at each other, enclosed by this space and, you know, just taking on all the suffering of the world is one thing that having this kind of thought experiment, as you describe it, helps us to move past I think it can help us to move past that. So I just wanted to make that point because so often when we talk about particularly black youth and black youth cultures, it's spoken of in this kind of, as a kind of alien, not connected to anything activity. And so that's, that's part of what I was trying to do in Terraforms as well was kind of, well, no, let's see what we're talking about here. What are we talking about here? Because we're talking about a moment, but the moment doesn't just occur. There's, something leading up and there's something going out. Yeah, I don't want to spend too much time just on mine. I, I wanted to ask you about um, Terraformed as well. And there was just one, I mean, I wrote lots whilst reading it, but there's one particular thing I wrote, or just a little note to myself, which to me seemed to kind of encapsulate, not necessarily what the book was about, but what it does, the effect it has. And that's that after reading Terraform, or anyone who's, who has read it, who does read it, you cannot claim that you didn't know this was happening, right? That you kind of lay it out, right? There's no, there's no, no one can be innocent or claim innocence after reading Terraform. And if we push that further, it's that, well, the fact that Terraform has been written, you cannot claim that it was not something to tell you how all these forces and effects were in play and having a, a, a direct impact upon the composition of the city. 
Right. Well, I just wanted to ask, like, if that was something you you had anything like that in mind in the process of writing the book or when you kind of started out or is that something, do you think that's a fair kind of interpretation of the book at all? I think that is a fair interpretation. I think it does speak to what I was, what I was trying, what I was trying to do. And with all of these things, you, you don't know how it's going to work or if indeed it works until you get, until you get to the end I started out really, really wanting to fit some of the pieces together for some of the young black people that were in my life in one way or another, either as students or as um, people people that I knew or whatever, because the same questions kept coming up and up again, which wasn't so much, why is it like this, which is kind of, well, this is how it is. And if it doesn't work out or if it's not working out for me, then somehow it's my fault. And then... This, and again, this kind of realising that, well, actually, these young people have had 40 years of neoliberalism. They've had 40 years of this kind of project that says work hard, that the UK is a meritocracy, that, you know, you can overcome racism, sexism, all of it. You know, you can overcome it. Just put your shoulders to the wheel and get on with it. But all of these kind of institutional institutions and systems that were at play were having a kind of really, you know, you could see that the inner city one time was so undesirable that had been ravaged by all these decades of underfunding and all the rest of it suddenly become desirable for one reason or another. And then you get another layer, you get another series of of pressures then, don't you? And then yet again, young people from particular communities find themselves, you talked about being enclosed, and I could feel that and I didn't, I always felt that I hadn't said enough that I didn't quite understand. I didn't quite understand it myself. And I just needed to try and get my thoughts together. And so I came up with this idea of, you know, the square mile of the city, because that's that's what we were talking about, these common ways of explaining grime and how it happened. We talk about Canary Wharf and the gleaming towers of the financial district. And I thought, well, what if there's a square mile there, but there's a square mile here too? So let's see. It's it, it's all East London. So it, it was an attempt to try and bring those things together. And then I didn't really have a way to explain it. So then I worked out this kind of um, idea of the, the a hyper-local demarcation. So really looking at these specific processes and forms and how they come into play in a particular area. Yeah, pretty much, you know, when you're talking about trying to think about something in a different way, that's what I was that's what I was trying trying to do because that's another thing i wrote wrote down to, to ask you about was hyperlocal demarcation and kind of tying it into the comment you made earlier about well the way in which you're using the square mile using the hyperlocal demarcation to to frame and kind of develop the ideas in your book but also that how the people you're studying with the people you're writing with in the book also have a kind of whether quite literal or kind of historical imagination that looks outside of of that particular place like they were other countries other times and i'm wondering to what extent that uh, feeds into your understanding of hyperlocal demarcation here that you know people might be quite literally you know kind of going to see family from other countries as part of being in this seemingly contained space or you know have grandparents who are from another place or from another country yeah, it's interesting, isn't it? Because when you have these areas that are um, so very multicultural, 
then those histories and those experiences don't they don't just disappear they become part of people somehow and so even though i could see or it appeared that for some young people that area is getting smaller and smaller it becomes very very tight now but still having this reach out into a very big world this kind of these kind of global global connections and you can see how the sounds that people make have changed because of these global connections and then they go around and come come back again so it's a curious story to tell it's it's a strange book but it was a strange set of circumstances that made me want to write it yeah and it is kind of odd to see very enclosed lives lived out in in, in this kind of global global way yeah yeah because i think i think that a lot of what you're doing in terraformed which i i realized i was maybe unconsciously trying to do was was challenge ideas of restriction and regional or region i guess like mm-hmm. the idea that well you might think of grime as a music from london but as you pointed out through its undeniable links to dancehall it's also somehow connected to kingston and you know the fact that someone like dizzy rascals i think his father's from nigeria that there's something of that contained in there and so what I think definitely kind of reinforced something that I was, again, unconsciously perhaps thinking about, but terror, reading Terraformed already brought it out, was that if we're going to build an opposition to, an insurgent opposition to the way these problems, these these forces affect people's lives in this country, that it's not only, it can't stop at the borders of whatever this country constitutes, right? We have to rethink the very borders and spaces of the country. Like if we're going to say, well, you know, let's have a a rethink of regions in Britain or something like that, that it's going to have to include Jamaica, Sri Lanka and West Africa and Pakistan, right? It's going to have to include that because all of the, all of the people at the centre of those, at the pinpoint of those forces are from there too, right? Whether it's they're actually from those places or the the constitution of their family means that they're, they're from multiple places. I think terraformed really kind of helps us. We're not talking about a, a provincial problem here, right? No, 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 not at all. I had um, a message on Instagram from a young man in Brooklyn who'd read it and said that, you know, it kind of resonated with him. I think he was 26. And he was saying that, you know, a lot of the themes he recognised, he could see it happening, all of that. But And then what was really interesting, he'd been born and brought up in Brooklyn. He had family in East Ham. Yeah, right, right, exactly. <laughs> so right. It, it's, but there's always something. And, and Terraform, it came out in the middle of the start of the first wave of the pandemic. So it came out in May. So I wrote all of it before, but um, some of the things that I wrote, and in the beginning, um, I had one or two people say to me that I was being a bit, was it opti- it wasn't even optimistic, a, a bit unrealistic in saying, well, just give them the money, you know, just give give the young people the money. They know what to do. We we know what to do. We're done talking now. Give them the money. And I had more than one or two people saying, oh, it's a very unrealistic position you're taking and, you know, flesh these things and all the rest of it. But look what happened. Look what happened because when we get to a stage where we can't leave such a big problem unfixed, such as leaving so many people out of work, leaving so many people at risk of, of illness and, and, and all the rest of it, we gave people the money. So am I being unrealistic? I don't think so. There's <laughs> no. a, you know, I don't think so. 
So that that bit, I did I did kind of think to myself, I was yeah, airy fairy left winger, you know, exactly, talking yeah. <laughs> yeah. talking a load of this, that, and the other. But in the end, we do know what to do, and 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 what you're saying is is, is beyond borders and regional and provincial thinking now, because the, the issues that were that we talk about, that we think about, they're not just for here. They're not just for here, and you know. The, the pandemic is global and it does have a global effect. And what it exposed, what it showed, were all of those inequalities that were just kind of, you know, the people that saw them were the people that felt it, but everybody else could kind of walk on by. We're not there anymore. And so when you say that we need a kind of, we do, we need a, we, we need a, a solution that goes beyond borders, you know, that is what we need. I feel a little bit vindicated now. <laughs> Definitely, I agree. With you. I would, I would, the only thing I would add is it's 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 obviously the money that they need, but also just to be left alone. That was one thing that definitely came in the book. Like the, the the condition of grime or footwork definitely were was a result of a, a lack of state interference. It's like, well, what what can people do if they're left to their own devices? They can do some pretty amazing stuff. Right, and they actually can can do some quite amazing stuff with a a seeming uh, lack of resources. They can find resources or improvise resources because I think it's I think what you're saying there is it's very different to a um well so put it this way you you put up a note at the end you make a note at the end of the book regarding you know Boris Johnson's call on the eve of election for for several thousand more police officers, but also it's important to remember that at the eve of Two elections ago, the, uh, Jeremy Corbyn called for exactly the same thing, right? So there's two seemingly opposite political projects are, are looking for the same solutions when it comes to policing and saying certain things with regards to policing and, and population. Then you know where those police are going, right? Well, Boris Johnson's more obvious about it, but if you give the if you give the police way more person power, they're going to use it in a very particular way. So I think kind of what you're pointing to there is there's not necessarily a neat social democratic solution here. It's, again, it's something more fundamental that I think Terra Fawn point points to as a book and as the possibilities for solution. Yeah, it was quite a risky endeavour as, as well to put all that together and to put it out there. But that's one of the things that I learned um, researching grime and the grime scene for so long was the, the whole project is a risky endeavour, you know, because as you describe in your book about the kind of racialized policing, the pressures from outside, the surveillance, the monitoring, all of this kind of stuff, all of these uh, processes that are put in place to kind of hover over, contain and squash what's going on. So if people can produce and create such innovative um, sound and products in all of that, then yeah, I, I just I just felt I need to be a little bit bold here, and take the risk, <laughs> take take the risk, and um, take the risky roads. Yeah, why not? <laughs> so, but it's really useful to have this kind of um, this conversation mm -hmm. from this quite different perspective. It's really kind of made me think yeah. about the work in different ways. So yeah. Mm. Because yeah. one thing the music tells you or showing you the very fact of its existence is the mm. immense amount of self-organizational capacity that people making the music have, right? Huge amounts that don't even correlate to anything like a party structure, right? That they can, they can keep hold 
community, a communal project, a communal artistic project, and don't necessarily need to have party lines, a kind of strict organisational structure, yet they can hold everything together. And so it's yeah. telling us something about organisation, institution, right, uh, but that they can appear in ways that we don't necessarily recognise them as such, right? Mm. They're intensely organised, but in a way that we need to, it makes us rethink our very idea of organisation, of institution and the likes. But one thing I did want to ask you about, because, you know, Terraform is actually a second book, right? Mm. So I was wondering about the relationship between your first book, which is on grime and entrepreneurship, if I'm correct, right, and, yeah. and Terraform. So what is there a relationship or is, is are they, were they two quite separate things? I suppose if there is a relationship, the relationship comes through. So in Terraformed, it would be chapter chapter three about why music matters. So the first book, Urban Music and Entrepreneurship, was was really just looking at some of the things that you're you're talking about, that how people organize themselves, what they do, where they go, how they and, and then what being part of that grime music scene allows people to do, which was to step into new identities, to become seen as event promoters or business owners or that that rather than because what I was looking at people who who had been described as neat not in education employment or training so the kind of castaway not the a a star to see top achievers as it was framed so I was looking at that and I think that what comes from that first book into Terraform this is this well these young people who as you say have managed to organize themselves create something out of nothing create something that has that is so fundamentally important socially culturally economically and this kind of global um travel in, in into the world and yet in the places in some of the places where it started from could that happen again with all of these pieces that i'm kind of laying out in terms of the legislation, policies, town planning, and so on. It's a slightly different question to yours, which is, was what would grime sound like had those things not been in place? My question is, now all those things are slowly being removed or, or quietened or flattened or pushed really out of sight or made very, very difficult to access. Could grime happen in those places now? That would be the question. So the, the connection is is in the the chapter that's on music, yeah, I would I, I would say that. And could it happen now? And if it did, would it sound different? But younger people, I think, are more likely to make drill. Yeah, that's something that popped into my head as you were speaking. Like, or perhaps perhaps the pressing question now is how do we understand the appearance of drill? Because I think again, it go, probably goes back to something we were talking about at the start here was. One way we'd have to acknowledge is the understanding of drill is about a very particular time and space. It's reflective of a particular conjuncture, right? But also, I think kind of what you're pointing to with that cut your ranks and grime connection is that, well, if we look at the the history of Black diasporic musical production, there's that thing that, you know, that Amiri Baraka calls the changing same. A new form always comes along to displace the other one, right? To, to knock it out of the way. So they, I think the appearance of drill is speaking to, to two registers at the same at the same time simul, simultaneously one is okay it's definitely speaking to something that's changed in the character of the city but i think it's also a longer historical thing of going they want these older heads out of the way right they want to make their own sound their own make their own stamp right and not be derivative so i think it's 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 got a multi temporality to it 
uh, some amount of it. And Grime did as well. Like Grime was trying to push the garage heads out of the way, but also was, as you said, looking back to something much, much longer, like saying, well, actually, we want to return to these core principles of a sound and MC and not all the kind of extra stuff that, you know, the no hats, no hoods type of ethos of 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 garage i think if we were gonna if we were gonna start to write something on drill we'd have to keep that in mind right that you're not it's it's particular but it's also part of a longer process that seems to continuously and something's going to appear in what 10 years time that knocks or maybe sooner that knocks okay. drill out of the world yeah and uh, yeah de- uh, definitely and i suppose because grime's gone off to uni now and and, and <laughs> exactly. ramp, ramping up riling up the sixth form yeah. 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 <laughs> so <laughs> definitely, yeah, yeah. Those those grime uh, people—they're old. They're old. I mean, like me, yeah. I'm old now, right? So yeah. <laughs> and the ju- the jungle heads are the kind of like grandparents of the whole thing, right? <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. One thing I did want to ask you about was where you see yourself within kind of. I think the one key difference between the the terraformed and and my thing is yours is definitely or seems to be much closer to a tradition of writing in sociology than mine so i'm wondering where you see yourself i mean you you point at people like c Wright mills and and les back if you could talk more about where you see yourself in that area of writing and, and thinking i think it took me a while to kind of place myself in that sociological tradition i suppose it took a while to even claim sociologist as an identity because my work is kind of steps in and out of different disciplines so yeah so all kinds of things in there so where where do I see I'm just trying to trying to think of different ways to different ways to articulate this kind of chaotic changing mess that we're in (laughs) and it's bizarre, isn't it? Because we're we're kind of going on from day to day, but it's not none of this is normal. You know, it's not normal to see death rates daily rising, falling, rising, falling. There's mourning and loss with each of those, but somehow we find time to talk about statues and bake-off. I don't know. But trying to trying to make sense of something that seems to be so sensely i don't know so yeah it's difficult to even read sometimes much less form coherent and articulate thoughts about where some of my um work might, might take me which sounds like a cop-out but it's all mad <laughs> yeah, yeah it's all mad you know yeah yeah but I'll try. It's a, <laughs> no it's, it's like a, a temporary a temporary um picture of chaos on the move yeah, isn't it? That's, yeah, that's what um, yeah. <laughs> writing a book like this. I, I definitely found I uh, the book was actually the, the book I did was finished a number of years ago. It was just kind of having difficulty getting publishers, and so I was one thing I was really worried about. It's like it's such it's it's time dated, and the um, the longer it is, the more kind of well. Firstly, I might want to go back and change it, but I was adamant. Okay, no, I'll leave even if it sounds dated. It is, but also that. Because it's like your like terraform, it's a snapshot of something in process. The further distance we have from that, the less it looks like a snapshot and just maybe just a poor piece of <laughs> poor piece of kind of writing and thinking. So I was kind of really having troubles. Just it just needs to be out. It needs to be out. Not that anyone's going to read it, but just for my own peace of mind, just to kind of 
the, yeah, these these processes shift so quickly. Yeah, um, and it seems to be difficult to kind of get a, get your arms around them. It's like the writing of the book is just a you're just about you're you're like riding the hurricane. You just about figured something out. You get it out quickly, and then that's it. Kind of then you fall off or kind of fall back into the whirlwind, as it were. And you need a you need some time off to. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah, definitely, definitely. Think about but it. I mean, I I read it. I read, I read that esky chapter the most closely, but you can tell, can't yeah. you? <laughs> yeah, yeah, definitely. definitely yeah. 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 So have you got plans for things that are coming out that either either break from Terraform completely in new territory or or stuff that you're looking to develop the lines of argument there even further? Um I'm going to I'm gonna write a piece about um I've been asked to write a piece about heroes, so I'm gonna write a I started off writing fiction, so it's going to be really interesting to work that in, and then and then thinking of a hero that's not been done so much already. So that's quite good for me because that's quite a creative piece of of, of work to think about. And um, yeah, I'll do that. But in academic stuff, it just rolls along. It's just rolling along, marking essays, marking essays. So yeah, but sometimes you need that kind of steady hum of something don't you so that especially now when when all is chaos you need that kind of steady routine of this is what's happening the essays are in mark these essays classes and so on so yeah i'm going to focus on that trying to maintain some kind of routine and then think of something creative to write that's outside of all of this <laughs> that's the way to do it that's the way to yeah. do it yeah. thanks for writing this because it, it does force you to think differently about a, a subject that I'm very familiar with, and so it can become, yeah, you, it, it become, it can become easy to think about it in the same way all the time. So this has made me really reflect on what I do think and what I what I do think I understand. So yeah, thanks for writing. Cheers, thank you. Thanks. Yeah. <laughs> Thank you for listening to the MIT Press Podcast and thank you to Joy and Danver for that wonderful discussion. If you don't want to miss forthcoming episodes of the podcast, make sure you subscribe on your medium of choice. And before we finish, I'd just like to say thank you to Samantha Doyle who mixes and edits the podcast and Kristen Galeno who produced the soundtrack. <laughs>